Hello everyone. My name is Brianne Martell. I'm a shareholder in Littler Mendelssohn's Seattle office, and I'm a member of the firm's pro bono committee. This week, Littler is joining the American Bar Association and many other law firms nationwide in the national celebration of Pro Bono Week. As part of our celebration, we are doing a series of podcasts highlighting the amazing pro bono work Littler attorneys have done this year. We are so proud of the hundreds of attorneys and staff at Littler who have committed their time and energy to provide legal assistance to those in need. In this podcast, I'm delighted to be talking with Emily Lynn, an attorney in Littler's Austin office, about an amicus brief she worked on to seek justice for a neurodiverse individual on death row who was convicted with science that has since been brought into question. This is a perfect project to illustrate the important work we can do as attorneys within the Pro Bono Week theme, which is Voices of Democracy, Ensuring Justice for All. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to share the story, Brianne. Emily, please tell us about the case. Yeah, absolutely. Some background on the case. In 2003, Mr. Robert Leslie Robertson III was convicted of causing the death of his two-year-old daughter, Nikki, and was ultimately sentenced to death under the now-refuted shaken baby syndrome hypothesis. And Nikki was a chronically ill child with known respiratory illness, and prior to her passing, she had actually been prescribed medication that the FDA now restricts usage for children under 18 due to the risk of breathing difficulties and death. On the night she died, Nikki had taken that medication, and in the middle of the night, Mr. Robertson heard a strange cry coming from Nikki's room. And when he went to her room, he had discovered that Nikki had taken a short fall from her bed. After putting Nikki back in bed, she eventually fell asleep, and, and so did Mr. Robertson. But in the morning, he found Nikki unconscious and rushed her to the local ER. During the multiple hospital and police interviews that followed, Mr. Robertson tried to explain how Nikki had been sick and how she'd fallen from her bed. But his interviewers were suspicious of his flat effect and judged his apparent lack of emotion. What they didn't realize was that Mr. Robertson had undiagnosed autism spectrum disorder, which, you know, of course, made it difficult for him to communicate his emotions, uh, particularly in such an overwhelming environment, you know, being in the hospital and, and dealing with the emotions of his daughter. Mr. Robertson was ultimately indicted based on the shaken baby syndrome hypothesis, which, you know, essentially is that when an infant presents with what is known as the triad of symptoms, which is subdermal hematoma, so bleeding between layers of brain tissue, cerebral edema, which is fluid in the brain, and the third retinal hemorrhage, which is bleeding in the back of the eye, the only explanation was thought to be violent abuse of trauma from shaking. In this case, Nikki presented with the triad of symptoms. And because the SBS hypothesis was still the generally accepted science during Mr. Robertson's 2003 trial, it was assumed that abuse was the only explanation. And in fact, at his trial, Mr. Robertson's attorney agreed with the prosecution and said, you know, this is the shaken baby case. So, you know, his attorney didn't challenge the state's theory regarding the cause of death. Instead, the defense only sought to refute the mens rea element, essentially arguing that Mr. Robertson didn't intend to cause 
indicate serious bodily injury. In the time since his conviction, of course, the science surrounding SBS has entirely changed. And based on this change, Mr. Robertson filed a state habeas application, and he did so under a new writ procedure here in Texas under Article 11.073 of the Texas Criminal Code. It's commonly referred to as the junk science writ, and it allows applicants to challenge wrongful convictions by showing changes in the field of forensic science that either seriously undermined the integrity of the conviction or completely exonerate the petitioner. So using that vehicle, Mr. Robertson filed a writ in Texas, and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals granted that writ and remanded the case to the trial court. At the trial court, there was a nine-day evidentiary hearing where Mr. Robertson was able to introduce numerous experts who informed the habeas court about the change in scientific understanding and how, based on this change, the causation in his case couldn't stand. And despite all this evidence, in an incredibly distressing turn of events, the habeas court basically ignored all of that evidence and rubber-stamped the prosecution's proposed findings denying relief. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals upheld that decision, which left Mr. Robertson to appeal to the Supreme Court, which is where we came in. So Mr. Robertson's legal team filed a petition of writ certiorari in May of this year with the Supreme Court, and we assisted with an amicus brief on behalf of a nonprofit called the Center for Integrity in Forensic Sciences. Just a bit about the center and the important work that they do. It was founded in 2017 by Professor Keith A. Finley, along with two well-known criminal defense attorneys, Dean Strang and Jerry Budine. If those names sound familiar, Strang and Budine were featured on Netflix's series Making a Murderer. Together, Budine, Strang, and Finley formed the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences. And the center's mission is to ensure the reliable use of forensic sciences, both in crime laboratories, but also in courtrooms. And one of the ways that they do that is providing amicus support in cases that are premised on outdated or flawed forensic sciences, like in Mr. Robertson's case. So in our amicus brief in support of Mr. Robertson's petition, we had two main goals. The first was to assist the court in understanding the history of shaken baby syndrome specifically what information that hypothesis was based on in the past and how the modern consensus in the scientific community has changed. And now the scientific community believes that hypothesis to be highly unreliable. The second goal was to point out how other courts across the country have granted relief in cases involving the unsubstantiated shaken baby syndrome hypothesis, just like in Mr. Robertson's case. So we felt it was really important to show the court that the relief Mr. Robertson was seeking was not, in fact, radical, but rather it was in line with what other courts around the country were doing when faced with the same modern-day scientific understanding. What a terribly sad case. It really is, Brian. As we noted in our brief, the death of Mr. Robertson's daughter, Nikki, is a tragedy. But that tragedy is, is now being compounded by the fact that Mr. Robertson is currently on death row for a crime that did not occur. How did you become involved in it? So I became involved with this case through Nicole Lefebvre, who's a shareholder in our Austin office and also serves as our pro bono liaison. Nicole has assisted on Mr. Robertson's case in the past and was telling me, you know, the story of what has happened in the past with his case and mentioned that there may be an opportunity for us to help with an amicus. And I jumped at the opportunity, really so moved by his story. 
Have you ever worked on a criminal law matter before? No, you know, I haven't. Um, and I also don't have a background in criminal law. You know, I took my criminal law course in law school and and that was about it. What was really eye-opening about this experience and working on on this pro bono matter was that you don't have to have that subject matter specific experience to meaningfully contribute to a pro bono matter. I was able to use my training in general skills and research and writing and then receive support from the center and from Mr. Robertson's counsel to ensure that we have the specific substantive material covered for the amicus. That's fantastic. We do encourage our attorneys to handle pro bono matters in nearly any area that they have an interest. I understand this case received quite a lot of publicity and there was significant support for the defendant's position. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right, Brianne. The case has received a lot of attention, and and we believe rightfully so. One example is novelist Sean Grisham drafted an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about Mr. Robertson's case and about the injustices that have occurred. That's just one example, though. Additionally, along with our amicus that we drafted for the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences, there were four other amici that submitted briefing in support of Mr. Robertson's petition, specifically other nonprofits, the Innocence Project of Texas and the Witness to Innocence nonprofits both submitted briefs. A group of physicians and scientists who talked more in depth about the outdated science submitted a brief. And then also, interestingly, a group of retired federal judges actually submitted a brief in support of Mr. Robertson's petition. So we have seen a lot of support and a lot of publicity for his case. You recently received news in this case about the Supreme Court's decision. What happened? Yeah, unfortunately, earlier this month, we received notice that the Supreme Court had denied Mr. Robertson's petition. It was incredibly devastating uh, for all of us that have been involved in Mr. Robertson's case. His attorneys are currently analyzing whether there are further you know, appeal options But as you know, the Supreme Court is typically the final opportunity for appeal in courts. Working on this project has been extremely rewarding. And while we're devastated by the result, we remain committed to assist Mr. Robertson in in whatever way we can. His case, like I've said, it's heartbreaking on so many levels. And to have a small part in shining a light on the numerous injustices that have plagued his case has been a real honor. Thank you, Emily, for your work and for discussing this important case with us. I'm very sorry to hear that the petition was denied. But even when we lose, perhaps even more when we lose, it's vital that we share the stories of those who are still seeking justice. Thank you so much for your dedication to ensuring justice for all. Your work is the testament to our firm's commitment to pro bono work. It's also a testament to our firm's commitment to diversity. As you may know, our firm launched an affinity group for individuals with disabilities two years ago, which has been very active and has formed a neurodiversity subgroup. We're always looking for opportunities to serve diverse individuals through our pro bono work, and this case is an inspiring example of that. For those Littler attorneys listening, if Emily's story has inspired you to do more pro bono work and you have questions about finding such opportunities, please contact your office pro bono liaison or myself or any of our pro bono committee members. A quick reminder that Littler proudly provides 100% billable credit 
to each Littler attorney for up to 100 hours of pro bono work each year. For those of our corporate clients or prospective clients listening in, if you would like to work on a pro bono project with our Littler attorneys, please contact your relationship attorney or any one of our pro bono committee members. Please look out for additional podcasts published this week featuring more exciting pro bono work by our Littler attorneys. This is Brianna Littler signing off, wishing you all a great pro bono week.